You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Thanks, Pastor Bill. You may be seated. It is so wonderful to be here with you today. Uh, I really just can't thank you enough, um, Salem, for the kindness and the hospitality. Um, Pastors Bill and Jacqueline are such a gift. Um, I know they're a gift for you. They're a gift. Amen. They are a gift in my life, and this has been a wonderful weekend, and it's also our first time leaving our one-year-old son, and so this was a big weekend for us, right? This was big. It comes with all that kind of conflictedness, like, Dear Lord, we need this, but also, did we just abandon our child? Um, but thankfully, he's doing great. He's, he's with his grandparents, and they're, we're getting regular updates. He's having a wonderful time. Um, but we're so glad to be here. I have, as Pastor Bill mentioned, a few friends that this church happens to know. The Reverend Dr. Chris Green, who, if you know him, you know he's a brilliant teacher. He's a wonderful preacher wildly constructive. I know he's been here. He's preached here. Another dear friend is uh, the reverends JP and Diana. Such a sweet, kind, and gentle spirit. I mean, you're with them and you think, I'm with a friend, because you are. Incredibly talented as well. Wonderful musicians, creatives, So Chris is a brilliant teacher, JP and Diana, amazing pastors, incredible musicians, and now I'm here. (laughs) Sorry, Salem, Um, but this is why I'm especially thankful that Katie is here, because that means, like, if, if I show up in a place, I'll tell you how it is in my church, if I show up in a place and Katie's not there, the first thing I hear is not, good morning, pastor, it's, hey, where's Katie? So thank God that she's here. Just a wonderful place to be, a beautiful spirit. One of the things that blesses me so much, and I see it here, I saw it this morning, is when I see mothers and fathers praying with sons and daughters. I'm not talking about something possessive or coercive. I'm talking about people in our life that God has given us who come alongside us and we can run to when we are in most dire need. It's a beautiful testimony. Would you pray with me this morning? Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of your Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant by that same Holy Spirit we we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to get through a lot of scripture. Is that all right this morning, Salem? All right. I want to start this morning in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Specifically in verse 26. This is a familiar passage to us. This is something that we know. We've read it. We've heard it. We've preached it. We've prayed it. We've taken solace in it. It begins like this. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Say weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we hear that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, I think, well, let me not project it onto you. Let me say, in the communities of faith that I was raised in, I think that we often heard, most often heard, in fact, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness 
equals the Spirit empowers us or me to help us overcome our weakness and to make us strong so that we are no longer weak. But what I want to propose to you this morning and some of the good news I've got to share with you today is that the Spirit's help is actually in our weakness. So on a, on a kind of pastoral note, I know that this can very easily go wrong. It can turn into a kind of romanticizing of failure or immaturity, maybe even a sort of valorizing of sin. This is not what I'm interested in today. Weakness is not shorthand for all the things wrong with me, all the stuff that I do wrong, the strongholds or whatever it is in my life. Think about the passage I just read again, Romans 8. It's precisely in our not knowing how to pray that marks the territory of the Spirit's intercession most clearly. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. In our weakness. 2 Corinthians 13 reveals this truth. Speaking of Christ, I'll just read it to you. Paul says, For he was crucified, can anyone guess what's next? In weakness, but lives by the power of God. And Paul says, We are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So here's what I want to suggest. Weakness refers to the vulnerability of love. The vulnerability of faith and hope. It is not those things that you despise about yourself. That sort of Romans 7, I do the things that I don't want to do. It's, it's, it's not that. Weakness here that we're talking about. This weakness is the weakness that we live into when we love one another. It's the shape that our life takes when we live in Jesus Christ. So just hang with me for a minute. To love as Jesus loves makes us weak. It makes us weak precisely in relation to the powers of the world and in relation to those who would consider themselves or we feel the threat of being our enemies. Weakness is the vulnerability of love. This passage ends in Romans chapter 8 or this, this section of this passage, Paul is asking, I want to say it's like verse 37, maybe 39. Paul is asking, who will separate us from the love of God? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, and here he's quoting Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, how are we going to talk about weakness? And now we're going to talk about being more than conquerors. Well, here's part of it. To be more than a conqueror, to be more than that, is not to be an ultra conqueror. It's not to be an uber-conqueror. It's not to be the conqueror who conquers all other conquerors. To be more than a conqueror in this economy of the kingdom of God is to be something other. See, if we're more than conquerors in a way that just means I'm a better conqueror than you, 
I can exert my power in better or stronger or more coercive ways over certain people than others can around me. It is the same thing. Or let me say it like this. It would be no better. No better than being conquered and subjugated. It's all a part of the same broken system. See, this is how the powers of the world work. They work by violence. They work by coercion. They work through systems of power that exist with conquerors and the conquered. But we're not of this world. We're a part of the kingdom of God. And our life together is to witness to that kingdom. And it only can because God has already graced us with his spirit to do so. This is why Paul says in all confidence, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And guess what? He says you're going to be more than a conqueror because you know what? In this kingdom, the systems of conquering, of domination, of coercion are done away with. You're more than a conqueror because you are something totally other and better. We are the people in whom the life and kingdom of God is witnessed to. A kingdom that is not marked by slavery and mastery, conquerors and conquered. We are more than conquerors because his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to look at Psalm 105 just a little bit. Psalm 105. Let's start in verse 4. Search for the Lord and his strength. Continually seek his face. Now this psalm, I think, gives us some clues into how we might seek, how we might find the Lord's strength. Look at the kind of progression here in the three verses just before it. So Psalm 105, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, and speak of all his marvelous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. So here's the clues. First, we gather. We give thanks in testimony, in song, in sermon. Second, We glory in his name. Our hearts are rejoicing that it is in him. It is in God we are made and called to be with. And then let me kind of jump down to verses 5 and 7. Remember the marvels he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, O children of Jacob, his chosen, He is the Lord our God. His judgments prevail in all the world. It's at this point, after we have given thanks, gathered, given thanks in testimony, song, and sermon, gloried in his name, rejoicing in our hearts that it is in him in whom we live and move and have our being, that we really, for the first time, remember, as the psalmist says, in the truest sense, what he's done. And that is what makes us apt. That's what makes us ready for his judgments to prevail in the world. Now think about this. I don't want to glance over it too quickly. But think about this connection between finding his strength, the strength of the Lord, and our weakness. With the psalmist, we are seeking for the Lord and his strength knowing and trusting that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And it's because of this that Paul will say later, I'm content with weakness, for whenever I am weak, then I am strong. It's precisely at that point, his weakness, that Paul discovers the Spirit's help, the strength of God. I want the cry of our hearts to be like that of the psalmist. Lord, we want to seek you and your strength. But seeking the Lord and the Lord's strength means coming in touch with our weakness. 
That's not a bad thing. Because remember how we're talking about weakness. Weakness is that life of vulnerability, of love. That life of love that causes us to live in ways with our neighbor where we are going to stick our necks out. Where we're going to bear our hearts. L- let me just say something. I didn't, I didn't have this in my notes, but, but at this moment I feel the sense I, I, sh- I should say a point of clarification. When I'm talking about vulnerability here and the life of love that leads us to vulnerability, I am not talking about a loss of agency. I'm not talking about becoming less than who God has made you to be. I'm not talking about being abused and victimized. There are victimizers. There are abusers. I'm talking about coming to ourselves in the fullest of ways, exercising that fullest of agency like what we see in the life of Jesus Christ, who does what he does willingly. Is he taken to the cross? Yes. Is he abused? Is he tortured and killed? Yes. But does he lose his own agency in the midst of that? Who he is? No. So I want to be careful because if there are some of you who have experienced that kind of abuse and you hear me saying that's good, I want you to know this morning that is not good. That's not what I'm saying. Because remember, what the Spirit does is helps us in our weakness. Helps us in our weakness. Helps us live into this life of love. But again, we're liable to to think of God's strength as a sheer kind of power to make things happen. Okay, okay, okay. I can be weak, but God's strength is really going to make stuff happen for me. But here's the truth of the matter, and it's a little bit disorienting, but hang with me because I've got some good news for you. God is not coercive, and God's power is not causal. God's strength is creative, and there's a big difference here. Sometimes we're liable to think of God's strength in the world or through us as kind of one thing among others, one cause among others. But that is not what is going on. The confession that we make as Christians is not that God is the great and biggest first cause in the universe that causes all cause and effects to render on. God is creative, which means God creates cause and effect. I used to teach theology classes, intro to theology classes to undergraduate students, and most of which it wasn't their major or desired area of interest, and they would come in, and there were always certain things they wanted to talk about. And one of the things, at least a few years ago, that a lot of students wanted to talk about was things like creation and what's going on there and how, what... The, the debates and all this stuff, and this is one of the things I said to him, like, listen, y'all can have your debates, and if that's interesting to you and fun, do it. But here's what I'm saying. When Christians say, I believe in God, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all that is seen and unseen, what we're saying is that there's a reason there is something and not nothing, and that reason is God. That's the theological confession. And it relativizes those kinds of debates. You can have them, and we don't have to divide over them. Because what we're confessing is that God's power is creative. It's it's good news for us. Calling back to the psalm for just a moment, verse 5 says, Remember the marvels that he has done. I think we often think of marvels, the wonders that he's done as feats of, oftentimes, coercion. Look at that. 
God's made things happen. He's put on the pressure here. He's laid the threat there, and he's caused this person to move. But the emphasis in the verse is on the offspring of Abraham and Jacob. Of course, when we look at those stories closely, the stories throughout the book of Genesis, it certainly does not seem like God's uh, judgments are triumphing. Those stories, I mean, read the book, are insane. They are wild, and they take crazy turns. We've heard so many of them our whole life that we've been inoculated against the kind of reality that, yeah, these stories are nuts, and they do not go the ways that we expect them to go. In many particular cases, people are clearly doing wrong, resisting God's will, frustrating God's purposes, and yet the Spirit finds a way by making a way where there is no way. Think about what's said in Isaiah. I am doing a new thing among you. I am making streams in the desert. And part of what I want you to hear this morning is the life that we have been given, the life that we have been born into in our baptism, the life of Christ. This life is a life in a kingdom that is not of this world, and God does things that are foolishness to the wisdom of this world. And the sooner that we can be open to that possibility, the sooner we can start to rejoice and see when God is working among us. It's true. Just as the psalmist says, God is always mindful of the covenant. But of course, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's ways are not our ways. And so it's probably the case, and if you read the scriptures, you find out it is the case, that God's mindfulness of the covenant does not look like anyone expects it to look. In fact, I mean, you've got stories like in the book of Hosea where God seems to sunder the covenant completely brings judgment. Hosea marries Gomer. They have children. The children's names are the pronouncements of God's judgments against the people. And he says, you're not my people and I'm not your God. And then like on the same page, it says where it was said of them, I'm not their God and they're not my people. They will be called children of the living God. Because God works in ways that are always and only ever for our good. And when it looks like the covenant has been sundered, it's only God creating new, co- creating, creating new possibilities so that the people might be brought to repentance and into the life of the Lord. Amen. I want to tell you, Salem, there is nothing, hear me, nothing, that God does to us, for us, with us, among us, in us, through us, that is not for our good and the good of our neighbor. We have to learn this mind, the mind of the Spirit, the mind of Christ, if we hope to see how God is minding God's covenant, as the psalmist says. Again, we've got to learn to remember rightly. This is why our stories and the honesty with which we tell our stories are so important. This is what we have in the scriptures. This is why we have Genesis and these crazy stories. Sometimes we're tempted, and I get it, but sometimes we're tempted for the sake of maybe pride, maybe for the sake of my own personal embarrassment, or image, but to tell our stories in ways that gloss over the difficult parts. But we've got to tell our stories truthfully. That doesn't always mean everywhere sharing every single thing with every person. If you're going to speak the truth, you've got to speak it in love. And sometimes it's not loving to do that kind of verbal vomit on your neighbor. But whenever and however we tell them, we've got to tell them truthfully. 
Now let me look to the gospel. Can we pull that up, the gospel text for today from Matthew? In the gospel passages, we've got this series of parables. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed it in the field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and has become a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And then he keeps going. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we get these parables, you get the point, over and over and over again. Smallness, hiddenness, duration, costliness, strange mixture. This is the picture that we get in the parables, and it's not exactly a picture of, and so here's your best life now. But, it is the way that God minds his covenant. It is how his strength works marvels. It is how God is moving creatively among us. Let me try to make this point a little more clear with one more. We might sneak another one in, but at least just one more passage. Genesis 29. I want to I read this story to you from today. Genesis 29, I think let's starts in verse 15. This is the story, of course, where Jacob has met Rachel. He ends up marrying Laban's daughters. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what will, what will your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely. Mark that in your minds. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than, than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. They seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. All right, we can follow this. This tracks. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. He's worked his seven years. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, made a feast, but in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So they consummate the marriage. Laban gave his maid to his daughter Leah, and that was her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, this is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other, also in return for serving me another seven years. So what Jacob has to do is wait a week, he then marries Rachel, and then has to work another seven years. Jacob did so, completed her week, Laban gives his daughter Rachel as a wife. So they consummate their marriage. His love for Rachel is more than Leah. He served Laban for another seven years. In this story, Jacob's working, marrying, being deceived, and marrying again, and then working further, what we find is that we can read this text in mirrored ways. Let me kind of offer this to you. Mirrored ways. We need to see both reflections. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. First, 
we can read this, this story as a kind of cautionary tale. A warning about how we end up trying to act in our own strength rather than in God's strength. More on that in just a moment. Second, we can also read it not just as a cautionary tale, but as a wise tale. Teaching us why it is better to trust in God's strength and trust that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. You remember that line I told you to mark from the story, Leah's eyes were lovely? That line should remind us of another story. It's the story of David and his anointing. I'll kind of give you the sketch of it. But if you're interested, it's in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel, who is the seer, this is his job. This is what he's been called to do. Is told outright in 1 Samuel 16 what he is to do. In verse 3, God tells Samuel, I will show you. And he goes on, I'm going to show you the one whom I name to you. So Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. He sees, is not shown, in verse 6, Eliab, and thought, surely this is the one. He sees, but remember what God said, I'm going to show you. But he sees and says, this is it. And we have that famous rebu rebuke in verse 7, right? Mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now in verse 12, David is finally brought out only after Samuel is asking Jesse, do you have any more kids? And here's how David is described. He has a ruddy complexion. And he has lovely eyes. Just like Leah. Lovely eyes. So this story, the story of Rachel and Leah, is a story like David's. Even the seer can missee. Even the seer can see what he or she wants rather than what is shown by God. Our kingdom is not of this world. And don't hear this as some kind of rebuke. Hear it as the word of compassion and hope that it is. We have been conditioned, we have been habituated our whole lives to see as the world sees by virtue of the fact that we live in this world. But God is doing a new thing among us. He's doing something else, and the ways that he works are strange. Holy, good, but strange. I said a moment ago how this passage, this story in Genesis 29 can be read in mirrored ways. So let me kind of walk that out for you. Think about it like this. In one mirror, I'm, I'm like Jacob and Laban. And in another reflection, I'm like Leah and Rachel. I think we know this, but I mean, this, this is what happens. I mean, when we read Scripture, we start to realize there's all these characters that are at work and their lives are kind of spinning around one another, and we can see ourselves or see them in us in all kinds of ways. We're all of these folks. we got all of them in us. We've got sheep and goats. We've got Laban and Jacob. We've got Rachel and Leah. All of them are in us. But in one reflection, it's like Jacob is a true self. Laban is a false self. We see him working in these kind of deceptive ways, right? A false one. He's this, this, this kind of shadow, this presence of myself as master rather than servant. Remember what Jesus said? I came not to be served, but to serve. A figure of strength. The Laban in us. The figure of strength. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to make things happen. This world around me, I'm going to bend it to my will. I've got some ideas. I've got some ends in mind, and I'm going to make them happen. Laban manipulating the left and the right. In fact, I mean, this may sound strange, but Laban is a legalist. Remember what he says? 
Jacob is astonished. What have you done to me? And he immediately says, look, man, this is the custom. This is the code here, brother. Sorry about it. He's a great capitalist. This man maximizes his profits. He's a flatterer. Read back through the story. See what he says about Jacob and as being his kinsman to set him up. Laban's a user. And the result of that is that love is frustrated. Now, it's easy to laugh in this story, as we always did in youth group, about why it is that Jacob doesn't realize it's Leah until the next morning. Mm -hmm. But here's the real joke in the story. Jacob doesn't realize who Laban really is until the next morning. He should have known. He's been working for this man for seven years. And even though it felt like days, this man is a manipulator. This man is a man of strength and his own power. We have to know ourselves well enough to know when we're shifting into that Laban mode. Being less than the truth of ourselves. Saying, you know what, I'm going to take these matters into my own hands. I'm going to bend the wills of people around me. I might do it by force. I might do it by threat or coercion. I might do it in clever ways, by flattery. But I'm going to make it happen for me. We've got to recognize that within ourselves. This is part of the reason what I said earlier. We've got to tell our stories truthfully. We need to tell our sons and our daughters about the kind of life that God has saved us from. If we don't know this about ourselves, we are never going to be able to love as we have been loved. This is not how God has loved you. God has not violated your personhood. God has loved you with a patient and everlasting love. It is the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. This is the love of our God. It is a love that has made himself vulnerable to us. That's the story of Jesus. God comes into the world and says, here I am. I'm going to live who I am among you. Do what you will. And we kill him for it. This is what the early church fathers knew. They say Jesus didn't have some kind of death wish. Jesus lives a fully human life, and we couldn't handle it. It was too bright. It was too good. It was too patient. It was too loving. It was too weak. So we took matters into our own hands. A lack of self-awareness is the obverse of the love of money. The more we are consumed with strength, and the more we think our strength can get us, the more out of touch we are going to be with ourselves and the world around us. Here's the truth of the matter. At the heart of reality, what is most real, what is most true, is Jesus Christ, who is the call of God and the creaturely response. And the further you get away from him, the more you are going to spin out into living in abstraction. Jesus calls us to the particular. Jesus calls us to see the people around us. Not live in ways that allow us to escape seeing them. There is nothing harder than love. And this is why we come so hard at things like principles and moral codes. Because if I've got my code, I don't have to worry about the nuances of your life. I can lay that code right on top of you and make my judgments for my high horse. But how many of you know, some of you who have been through some things, know that life is messy. 
And there are some of us who have lived lives, who have seen it or lived it ourselves, where we have been sinned against in ways that caused us to respond and caused us to be bent and broken in certain ways. And thank God he redeems us. He saves us from that. But we know it gets messy. It gets difficult. God a consuming fire you better believe it but God's love is also like that fuller soap that gentle cleansing and sanctifying who when you're at your lowest he says I got it I know where you've been I know where you're coming from I know why you did this and he says good news I didn't come to condemn the world. He came so that the world through him might be saved. I told Pastor Bill, I asked him, I said, how long are sermons usually here? He gave me a number and I said, oh man, I'm going to tell you something, that's about... 25 minutes less that I average at my home church. So if you think this is too long, blame Pastor Bill. So how do we come to know ourselves? Back to the psalm. Not by dwelling on our weakness, but by seeing his strength, remembering rightly the faithfulness of the Lord, bearing in mind how he minds the covenant in those wonderful and strange ways. So if that one mirror is like Jacob and Laban, in the other mirror there's Rachel and Leah, both are lovely, but only one is beloved in the story. But here's the thing. As with David and Leah, so it is with us. It's the eyes that matter. She had lovely eyes. Rachel was graceful and beautiful, desirable and easy on the eyes, but Leah had depth. My Rachel self, if you will, is the one that I put on display. That's the image I want to project. But my Leah self is the one God knows I need. There's this this line in Jeremiah 20 where... um, Jeremiah is denouncing his persecutors, and he kind of starts this speech off by saying, O Lord who deceived me, I was deceived. Does God deceive us? Not as Laban did. No. But in another way, yeah. Don't mishear me. Don't say, whoa, 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 are you trying to make God out to be a liar? I know what my scripture says. No, that's not what I'm saying. Any of you have kids or young ones that you cared for or remember being a kid yourself? You ever been told something by your parent about where you were going to go only to find where they said you were going wasn't where you were going? In fact, where you were going was much better than where you thought you were going? Did they deceive you? Were they untruthful with you? Because truth can only be done in love. They were loving you. They wanted you to experience that delight, that surprise of joy about arriving somewhere that you thought you were going to hate, but you found out, oh my gosh, this is what you had prepared for me. Y'all, God is playful. God has fun, and he delights in our delight. That adjective, lovely, lovely eyes, it's, it's wonderfully ambiguous. It's translated in all kinds of fun ways. It can mean weakness or weak. It can mean lusterless. It can mean lovely or sweet. One good feature as opposed to Rachel's overall loveliness. So in the remainder of the chapter, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming home here, We see this drama play out between these three. Rachel is beloved, but Rachel is childless. 
Leah is hated, but continually bearing children. Because the Lord saw that she was unloved, and the Lord opens her womb. This weakness, that which we do not love about ourselves, that which others do not find lovely in us, this is what God loves. And this is what God makes into a womb in our life. Because God is interested in creating things. Birthing new things. Obviously, Jacob is with both of them. Leah wants to be loved by him, child after child, year after year. In the story, she hopes to turn his heart. And eventually, by the time we get near the end of this chapter, she gives up. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And just like that, her fruitfulness stops. I told you, strange stories. Now, another weakness we can accept, or rather, can we accept, that there is a limit to our own fruitfulness. Even as it is given to us by God. I grew up in a kind of spirituality that said, no end was good. But what's God's relation to ends and death? Jesus dies. I mean, this is the Christian confession. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. There can be good endings. We are creatures. We have limits. She increased and she decreased. That's life. Her decreasing, though, makes room for Rachel's change. And when Leah ceases to bear children, Rachel's prayers are heard. Remember, these are both aspects within ourselves. There's this line in that short but incredible book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. You know the story, I'm not going to recount it. If you don't, please read it. But it's the only other, only other time outside of Genesis that Leah is mentioned. And it says this, it's kind of this wonderful climax. Boaz is here. He's going to take Ruth. The people are seeing it. This is really happening. And then all the people who were at the gate along with the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrath and bestow a name in Bethlehem. It is a woman, singular, who is to be like Rachel and Leah together, built up the house of Israel. And it's interesting, too, that in, in that line, Leah is listed as second, even though she's the first wife and the mother of Levi and Judah. And furthermore, Ruth is a Moabite. She's an outsider. Reconciliation, integration, oneness, healing, that we build up the house only when both Rachel and Leah are at one with both of us, in us. Their fruitfulness and their unfruitfulness. Something happens when we can come together within ourselves like that. So we see these three stages with Leah. She wants to be loved by Jacob. She reconciles herself to being loved by God. And finally, she steps aside so that Rachel can be loved. Instead of trying to earn that first place, she gives it to Rachel. And it may sound strange, but what I want to tell you today is that's the shape that our lives are able to take. Leah learns to love in weakness. At first, she tries not to be weak, but then she accepts that she's got to be, and then she delights in giving strength to others. That doesn't sound like coercion. That doesn't sound like power exerted over and against someone else. 
that sounds like the vulnerability of love. Living with one another in ways that actually foster the space where God is going to work creatively in our midst. As a friend of mine and Bill says all the time, I can't stop God from being good in your life. I can't stop God from doing what God's going to do. But I can live with you in ways that affect how you experience God's goodness. This is the life that we get to live. So let me close with this thought. This morning, we sang this song. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I didn't know we were singing this today. I didn't know the set list, but as we're singing it, and we can see it, it's still there. His background is the cross. We're saying, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing, holy, holy, holy. And it struck me. My mind went to the Gospel of John. And if you've read the Gospel of John, you know where the glory of God is revealed and abides. In the cross. The Gospels give us different stories, different ways of thinking about and understanding what Jesus has done, and they are all wonderful, and they can all be taken in faithful and faithfully different ways. But for our purposes today, I want to draw your attention to this. Could this become our prayer? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. And if I can take on for just a moment that persona of the writer of the Gospel of John. To see Jesus high and lifted up is to see Jesus on the cross. In weakness. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And if this is what God is actually doing among us, you can trust that God's going to liberate you to live that life. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.